0: something for a book about some actually let's just start before before i stay all yes. these things and um, yes. so yeah uh, so hello everyone um welcome to another episode of chatter uh today i am here with christopher leonard uh the author of the lords of easy money so welcome to the show man thanks for having me it's a pleasure uh really and hopefully i think the audience is gonna get a real kick out of this um so because i i got quite a lot of my audience from um from the GameStop saga that sort of happened oh. and is still unfolding. So that's that's when the channel like blew up is because I interviewed a few people about it. Um, so anytime I get anyone who's involved in like financial corruption or or anything along these lines, um, people love it. So yeah, I'm sure they, the, the people listening will be already enjoying this. So what was I saying? Yes, your book is fantastic <laughs> in that you managed to tell a really personal and engaging story about a topic that most people would find as boring as watching slow drying paint. <laughs> so Absolutely. like, first of all, uh, congratulations on that. That's that's an right. achievement in itself. <laughs> um, yeah. So Thanks. before we go into like some more deeper questions, why don't you give people an idea of who you
1: are, like your background a little bit maybe, and then why you chose to write the book? Absolutely, yeah, thank you. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business journalist and an author. And I'm based in the United States. This is my third book. I tend to write about very large, powerful institutions. And I feel like my primary job is to help map out the sort of system of political and economic power and then, you know, reveal how it works and explain it to people in a way that's really easy to understand. So that's my entire primary job. And that you know that brings me directly to why I wrote this book. So, you know, one of my key concerns as a business journalist is income inequality, uh, which is a global problem in the developed world. I mean, it's definitely a problem here in the United States. And the primary question is, why do we live in a system where the economy can grow for ten years, but the gains are captured by a very tiny group of people? And and this is a question you can just explore from angle after angle, and in, in 2016, I, I did this interview that really opened my eyes and made me realize that, that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is, is a key part of understanding what's going on in our economic and political system. It's a key reason why the gap between the rich and poor has grown so dramatically over the last uh, decade. It helps explain why we live in this highly volatile and fragile financial system the, the Fed is, is really important to understand this. And I became obsessed with the Federal Reserve in 2016 and started to report on it and then kind of found the human stories behind it that help illustrate it for the reader. But I guess if I, if I could just put a quick headline on it, what, what attracted me and what I try to write about in this book is the fact that over the last decade, the Federal Reserve has been engaged in a truly unprecedented and, and radical experiment in money printing. Uh, you know, The Fed, as a central bank, it has one superpower, can create new dollars out of thin air. And the Fed is the only institution that can really do that. And when you look back over history, during the first 100 years of its existence, the first century, the Fed kind of slowly and incrementally created new money or what the economists call the expanding the the monetary base. And then, you know, you see this line kind of gradually increase over a century. And then between 2008, 2014, there's just this spike. The Fed creates over 300 years worth of money in about four years, total step change. And that reshaped our economic system in ways that I try to describe. And that's, I I really, I, I want to explain why that happened, what it means, how it works, how it explains what's going on, and that's why I wrote the book. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just getting up a little graph here, so
0: people have an idea. Um so I'm getting the it's a graph of the m two money supply. I'm just gonna pull it up and then share it with you um so that people can see what we're talking about um who are who are listening or who are watching even. <laughs> um so you should be able to see that if I just change this camera
1: and then and incidentally okay, so i yeah that's i can one. see this graph in my mind's eye as i sleep but yeah
0: it's 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 stunning like it's absolutely insane like when you really consider what that is like that's the percentage change of of the amount of money in year year uh from the prior year and that last little spike is like 2020 to, 2020 2021 basically I th- isn't it something like, like 40% of all dollars were printed in the last like 24 months. That sounds right.
1: Yeah. That sounds right. It's, and
0: it's, it's obscene. I, I, um, it's, it's something that I really, really just, I can't even understand how someone believes this is a good policy. So before we try and like get our head, head around that, let's go back a wee bit and, and sort of lay out for people, maybe like some of my UK listeners, um, who don't know what the Fed is and don't really understand, or even U.S. Um, listeners don't know what the Fed is and maybe don't understand, like, why it was set up and what, what their original goal with it was, so we can sort of lay a, a ground for for what we're going to discuss.
1: Yes. And, and okay, so the Federal Reserve at its root is America's central bank. And of course, England has its own central bank. Japan has its own central bank. Russia, as we've been really reading about, has its own central bank. So each bank is structured a little different, but they let, let's go back to 1913. That's when the United States created the Federal Reserve. And and you know the united states resisted creating a central bank for for really over a a century and we would create one and then get rid of it and then create it again and and the reason why we were so hesitant to create a central bank is it, it just is it represents so much centralized power and there was this theory in america that we really needed to decentralize economic power at least there was you know back in the early decades of the country but the central bank is really necessary to do two key things. The first is that a central bank can create a common currency for a nation. And you know, in the United States, it's, pre- it's pretty fascinating. In the late 1800s, we literally had thousands of currencies in in this country, which is kind of interesting. When yeah, yeah, thousands of currencies. So really? yes, which is like interesting war. for the, for the crypto you know, conversation. This is an interesting parallel. So let's go back to like 1900. Uh, A bank in Illinois would literally issue its own currency, its own bills. And if I lived in Illinois, I would get those bills as, as a representation of the money that was inside the bank or the stored value. But if I went to Oregon they would have a different bank, issue, uh, you know, a different currency or maybe five currencies issued by banks in Oregon. And so if I'm checking into a hotel, I'm carrying this currency from Illinois, and we have to have a discussion about how sound my currency is. How sound is that bank in Illinois that issued this currency? Wow. And Yeah. I this have is no tr- idea this went on. This went on. And and again, to me, it's kind of mind-blowing, thousands mm-hmm. of currencies in the United States. And then we started to standardize currencies somewhat by creating these chartered national banks. But now we're still talking, we've got dozens of currencies, large scale currencies, and it's a recipe for financial chaos. And and financial chaos really did dominate the American financial scene for decades, Uh, particularly like, uh, you know, after we created a modern industrial capitalist society after the civil war in the 1850s. That was a period defined by currency volatility, uh, long bouts of deflation, and most importantly, these periodic bank panics. Um, and, And we could walk through the mechanics of bank panics, but suffice it to say, when people lose faith in the currency, they rush the bank, they try to get their money out, the value plummets, and we were facing this problem again and again in 1907 there was an enormous bank panic in the united states and we had to count on the private sector bankers to step in and solve it jp morgan the famous american banker literally held a meeting in his office in new york he bailed out the financial system and there was there was political pressure to create a better way that that you know we shouldn't be living in this real volatile up and down period of bank panics and, and depending on bankers like JP Morgan to bail us out. So we created the central bank, the federal reserve, which issued this currency called the federal reserve note, otherwise known as a dollar. And it became a national unified, consistent currency, really important. So so we created the Fed to create our own currency and to be the sort of stable anchor of the financial system. That was the first job. The second critical job is that the Fed was supposed to stop those bank panics I just mentioned. Okay. The Fed was given this authority to create money out of thin air, which I'm going to call printing money even though that's not technically correct the the money the bills are printed at the treasury but the fed creates money out of thin air which i call printing money cuz people understand that yeah. so so the fed was yeah. given authority when a bank, when a bank panic started to emerge the fed would be the so-called lender of last resort it would print money to lend to otherwise healthy banks to stop a panic so the fed would stabilize the banking system so that's why we created a central bank. Okay, it worked pretty well at doing those two jobs for, for decades, from 1913 up until 2008, um, it, an era of, of increasing instability, but more or less stability most of of the time. So that's that's why we have a central bank. It creates and manages the currency, and it was built to stop bank panics. Okay,
0: yeah. Is it? This is one of the things that I'm always very confused about. Is like. Is it? What is the definition of like who actually runs it? Like, is it a privately run organization or is it a government run organization?
1: Such a great question. I I describe it as like a genetically engineered hybrid of government and private bank. It makes no sense. It's this bizarre hybrid animal, and which is so interesting. And it gets to the politics of how things work today. So, and by the way, you know, I know that this is all super important for the world. And I think for your listeners, because of the the importance of the dollar, Mm -hmm. you know, the Fed is the central bank for the United States, but the dollar is the global reserve currency. So the decisions made inside the central bank really do affect everybody. So to your question, like, is this thing a government agency? Is it a private bank? You know, the reality is it's both. So first of all, they create the Federal Reserve to be technically owned by private sector banks in this complicated way where they've got stock that they can never sell. And the Fed is actually a system of 12 regional banks. And each regional bank is controlled by a board of directors that are chosen from local private sector banks. So so in a way, it's a private sector bank, but here's the key part. The Fed is controlled by a governing body based in Washington, D.C. And there's, you know, confusing, it's a very confusing structure, but there's one, there's a governing committee called the Board of Governors. And and these are basically like political appointees who are appointed by the president, approved by the Senate. They're 12 people who work in an office in Washington, D.C., and they set policy for the bank. They decide this is what the bank is going to do. So they're 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 kind of, they're they're political people, and there's they sit on a political committee and they control this private enterprise that is the central bank. So here you see the mix of public and private. Hmm. And and then to confuse things even more, the most important policies at the Fed are decided by this committee of 12 people, which includes that board of governors I just mentioned, plus. A, a rotating cast of regional bank presidents that come in. And, and this is the committee called the federal open market committee or the FOMC. Yeah. That's the really important committee. Okay. They're the ones that meet every six weeks. They decide whether to raise or lower interest rates or whether to do extraordinary bailouts. So, you know, very long answer to your question. It's a hybrid between government agency and private bank. And, and it's, another critical critical point before i shut up is that they they built this bank so that it's insulated from voters okay the the committees i just mentioned aren't elected by the people they have long terms and and the idea here was that we will insulate this bank from the sort of grubby business of electoral politics so that the bank can kind of act in the public interest yeah okay which seems fine but, in theory Yes, and it's one of these kind of unhappy compromises, in the sense that yeah, you don't want someone who's like a United States Congressperson running for election every two years, yeah, that could get corrupted. Mm -hmm. But at the same time,
0: it's like you can't have like wildly volatile fiscal policy. That's just recipe for disaster. Realistically, Um, it needs to be yeah. So sorry, just finish your point
1: there, and I've got a couple of questions about that board. Well, you nailed why it's not great to have elected officials at a central bank, but the the flip side is you've got a committee of 12 people making these hugely consequential decisions with very little accountability. Yeah.
0: Okay. Are they the most powerful people in the world? And can they be sacked? And what oversight is there?
1: There's very limited oversight. They can be sacked, but... uh, it's it's a complicated maneuver to fire a central bank um governor and then the, the the you know the all these committees we say have a chairperson and that's the chairman or chairwoman of the federal reserve which right now is this guy named jay powell previously it was janet yellen before that it was ben bernanke alan greenspan uh, most we-
0: of my listeners will be very familiar with uh, daddy powell and his money printer uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and they can't be easily fired and there's this whole idea that they're supposed to be independent of, of politicians and they can't be pressured by elected representatives without question they are among the most powerful people in the world I mean the committee of people who runs the Fed has tremendous economic power and tremendous economic influence but but they're also in a way, they're subject to pressures from Wall Street and from the investment community. Mm. And and in a way, the picture that kind of emerges is is yes, they're the most powerful people. It's this committee of twelve people. When they make a decision, it's going to affect the entire global economy. Mm. But they're also kind of slaves to Wall Street, to put it bluntly. I mean, there's so much pressure not to cause market volatility or to do what's necessary to prop up stock prices and to help hedge funds like BlackRock that it's not like they're dictators so it's kind of complicated mm.
0: no that makes sense i mean um in research for i've been writing a book about gamestop which is uh, coming to a nice conclusion actually at the moment um but um part of it has been examining like some of the bodies like the nscc uh, the dtcc and the, they're all kind of in this weird gray area where they're kind of government, but kind of private and they're kind of independent, but also kind of a to, do you know all the, the big funds on wall street? So it's, it that seems to be just the way that our financial system has has sort of built itself up is that sort of weird combo of public and private.
1: And I love books like that, to be honest, because I'm not familiar with the two entities you just mentioned
0: at the uh, depository trust clearing corporation and the oh uh i don't remember what nscc stands for right now (laughs) yeah Um, but but yeah they're they're two two uh two bodies that are are involved in the clearing of trades it's like the t plus two settlement date they're the ones that there's the clearing house that that basically like oversees all of that for um the entire stock market basically. So they um there was a lot of stuff that went on with Ga- GameStop and with with Robinhood um where they had there was like claims that they had been not margin called but they'd been sent for like they'd been told to put up huge sums of money basically due to the volatility in the trades they were making in order to um because they were they there was a lot of people buying GameStop and AMC and a lot of stocks and then the price became ridiculously pumped up and then the volatility meant that there was like capital requirements needed to be posted to cover all the the the, the trades and and then that's when they turned off um the buy button um under what direction uh, is still up for speculation and we'll see how the lawsuits come on, but yeah. um yeah so that's why i was exploring that but um to go back to the to, to the fed um i would love to know yeah why we started this policy of quantitative easing because we've had it in the uk as well and it's it happened at the same time it happened around 2010 11 is uh when the the conservative government came to power for the first time the ones that are still there um is my entire adult life Um, and the uh so they started the same policy and in those first few years they printed 435 billion pounds, which is enough to give 6,000 pounds to every single person in the UK. And then they've increased it since then. So like what made us start this insane policy of just printing just obscene amounts of money?
1: Great question, so let's talk about it. But quickly, what I like about your book too is is when you really start to get down to the mechanics of how these things work, it's always surprising. It's always more complicated than people think. And then there are always these dynamics of power. Who's making the decision to turn off the buy button? And who's benefiting from all this? What the Fed has been doing is very similar in the sense that the, the Fed, okay, as we've talked about over the last decade the fed's been engaged in these really radical policies of driving growth through money printing wild stuff that graph you showed at the beginning i could we could walk through like 10 graphs of that where history goes like this and then just explodes you know we're in a different territory and the program at the heart of that is called quantitative easing which the fed really undertook in 2010 but when the Fed undertook it, it pressured other central banks to follow suit. That's one key reason why you see it in Europe, why you see it in the in the Central Bank of England, um, or 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 uh, yeah, the, the, the Euro, yeah, the, uh,
0: the European Central exactly. Bank, exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of the book. The you know the Lords of Easy Money or whatever starts on November third, two thousand ten. Yes, and. A key thing here is the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 was a near, you know, it it was a cataclysm. It could have created a depression. Uh, I just want to emphasize the point that the Federal Reserve was largely responsible for that crisis because it had kept money so cheap for so long that it stoked these huge bubbles in the market for housing and stocks, uh, what we call asset bubbles. When, when a central bank keeps lending too cheap for too long, it creates inflation. We all know that, right? Like The whole problem is if, if you keep money too cheap and too easy, it creates inflation. But there's two kinds of inflation. There's inflation for the things we buy and consume, like hot dogs, television sets, and cars. That's price inflation. But central banks can create asset inflation like they did with the housing bubble because they kept rates so low for so long that everybody starts borrowing to buy houses and the price rises to a level that's just simply unsustainable and then it crashes. So we see this tremendous crash in 08, 09. And it's cataclysmic. It wipes out trillions of dollars in wealth. The Fed responds by being the lender of last resort at a scale it's never done before. It prints a trillion dollars to bail out the banks, to bail out uh, foreign central banks like that in England or uh, Brussels. And then we we have this hangover, okay? That's 09 And, and the book opens in 2010 when economic growth is still really weak, the unemployment rate is still really high. And what's critical is the economists knew that life was going to be this way. When you have a financial crash, it takes a long time to dig out of that hole. But there was political pressure to do something about it. You know, unemployment is still at 10 percent. Growth is still really weak. There was so much political anger in America. And, and, you know, in, in 2010, we see this right wing Tea Party movement take power in D.C., our, our, our democratic institutions in the United States become more and more paralyzed and dysfunctional. And so the central bank under the chairman, Ben Bernanke says, you know what? We are going to push into the center here. Okay, we are going to become the engine of economic growth in America. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do it in, in in the one way we can. We're going to print new money. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and that's a really key thing to sit down and kind of think about. When, when you drive economic growth, you can do it through like Keynesian economics of, yeah. of bar, you know, the government hiring people to dig ditches and build buildings and uh, missiles or whatever. Yeah. This is a different thing. This is a central bank saying, we're going to print hundreds of billions and eventually trillions of dollars and give it to the banks so that they do more risky lending and, and drive growth that way. Why is that Ben Bernanke's
0: decision? Like, like, in what? Obs- like, I, I am stunned here because, like, obviously, I'm aware that quantitative easing has happened, and I've, you know, we, uh, like, you know, I've been through your book, um, and I've seen that this is the case, that it was driven by the Fed, but like, it's just dawned on me right there, this second, is like, why the fuck is that Ben Bernanke's decision, like? He wasn't fucking elected. He's not Congress. And I'm fairly sure they're the only ones that are allowed to tax um, or at least allocate spending. It, or it, I can't remember the exact language as far as I'm aware. So Congress are, as far as I'm aware, the only people who can yeah, allocate the budget. So why is a central bank suddenly allowed to do that? Like is it, I don't know why I've not thought of this before.
1: <laughs> it's such like a profound, interesting, revealing question. So what you're talking about here is in the United States, you have so-called quote, fiscal authorities, fiscal tax spend. This is our, our democratically controlled institutions like Congress and the White House. These are the people that can say, okay, folks, we are gonna tax you, we're gonna raise money and we're gonna use that money to build a dam or a bridge mm-hmm. or a school. And that's how society works. Yeah, normally. That's, that's fiscal policy. But then you've got quote, monetary policy, which is what what the central bank does which is manage a currency mm. and then be the lender of last resort to the banks so we're in this moment in 2010 where you've got this very ambitious chairman of the fed named ben bernanke who really is aggressive in terms of talking about ways central banks can increase their influence and be experimental i mean I charted in the book all the way back in the year 2000, he was writing these papers about how central banks can do new and experimental things to stimulate growth and and quantitative easing, so-called QE. It's one of these experimental things that the bank had never done before. Mm -hmm. And, And what he's saying is it's kind of amazing. He's like, forget interest rates. Forget raising and lowering interest rates, which is how the Fed used to primarily intervene in the economy. He's saying, Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out to Wall Street, and we're going to go to this group of 24 select banks that are called primary dealers, and we're going to buy stuff from them. We're going to buy treasury bonds and mortgage debt, and we're going to make those purchases by just creating new money in, in the reserve accounts of these banks. So, so with quantitative easing, the Fed goes out to JP Morgan, says, hey, let's, well, we want to buy $8 billion of treasury bonds from you. And JP Morgan says, OK, here you go. And then the Fed says, look in your special reserve account at the Fed. Boom, $8 billion just appeared. And the Fed does this over and over and over again until it has created, for example, the first round $600 billion inside these bank accounts on Wall Street. And and that's what quantitative easing is. Now, your 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 primary question was like, who gave Bernanke the authority to do it? Yeah. Gray area, man, to be honest. Like the Fed is given authority to do business with primary dealers. It's not explicitly barred from doing quantitative easing. The whole public debate around quantitative easing was essentially non existent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I don't remember
0: so- it being asked. I mean, I was no. young, but <laughs> I don't remember anyone else being asked.
1: <laughs> they just did it. And and like, that's one of the key points of the book is these central banks have gathered up for themselves more and more power, authority and reach while the politics behind it has become more and more removed from America, from general people. Hmm. That's what bugs me about the phrase quantitative easing. It instantly just sounds like a science experiment or some PhD theory that we're not going to understand. Yeah, uh, it's really just money printing to drive growth. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Do you think
0: people would feel differently if that's how it was described?
1: I know for a fact they would, and that's why Ben Bernanke, when this happened, he went on a, a huge American television show called 60 Minutes, watched by millions of people. Mm-hmm and he said categorically on tv we're not printing money that's a misconception uh-huh.
0: no we're just a- typing in was... numbers in a computer it's much easier like... <laughs> exactly
1: and uh, people know intuitively that if you overuse the authority to create money you're debasing the currency and creating dangers of inflation and when he said we're not printing money he was kind of mis- he wasn't kind of he was misleading the american people and obscuring what they were really doing and and you see this again and again they cloak it in complexity but when you really get down to it they are doing these things that people react to like oh my god you just created a trillion dollars in the banking system to push banks to take on more risk and buy more assets and pump up the stock market like that doesn't sound like a great way to drive economic growth
0: and seems like a very cheap and synthetic way to do
1: it, or at least short-term cheap. Short-term cheap is a great way to put it. Mm. And it builds up long-term risks. And it's like, if you could really achieve true sustainable prosperity through printing money, everybody would do it. Right. If it was that easy, everybody would do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, really. Um, So one of the things that this does um, that, that I was kind of aware of and then, um, you know, point, would, would you point out in your book that wealth inequality is like one of the, the, the biggest concerns that you have is, is like that that really turned me on to like this, I'm gonna enjoy this conversation because like, for me, that is one of the biggest things that I think we just totally ignore. Like, and I, I don't think we think enough about what happens when the inequality gets any worse at all, because we're, we're at like levels that are just, ridiculous like all of the growth basically since 2008 has just gone to the top and everyone else's like uh, stay at home pay on like a in a real terms way is either the same or basically gone down and the more that that happens the less stake people have in the economy the less people who are stuck at zero with no way out the more they will just the The more chance there is that someone will just go well, fuck it, and like flip the table, and everything goes insane, and that's when you get like revolutions, um, very dangerous and violent revolutions, and that's not what I want. So I would, I'm very pleased that someone is addressing um this issue uh, in their book. Uh, so do you want to explain how that is the case? Why is it that that quantitative easing is leading to an increase in wealth inequality?
1: Yes, and just. Ditto, emphasize, fully agree with everything you just said. This is one of the most important issues facing the world and one of the most important issues facing developed economies across the world. This is key. And and, and you're pointing out it's not just like some moral issue. It is a moral issue, by the way, but it's also a pragmatic issue about social stability when you've got the vast majority of the population treading water and in fact, slowly sinking, which has been happening, um, particularly in America, you know, wages have been flat since basically the eighties while the cost of living, the complexity of living has been rising and rising. Okay. Critical, critical issue. Your question to me is how does the fed play into it? Mm -hmm. And this is so important. Um, To say that the Fed has been stoking income inequality isn't like some kind of analysis or opinion. It is a mechanical reality of how quantitative easing works according to the Federal Reserve itself. So again, when the Fed creates these billions of dollars, it has to do it uh, necessarily by the way things work. It has to do it by creating the money inside bank accounts on Wall Street. When the Fed creates new dollars, it can only do that by creating this money inside the accounts of the so-called primary dealers. That's J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo. Okay, fine. So, so the Fed prints roughly $3.5 trillion new dollars inside the banking system. And the Fed does it with the stated goal of like, trying to drive economic growth. But You know, I had the luxury of getting to go back and read through the internal debates at the Fed. I interviewed the people who were involved in the debates, and it's just not up for contention. The Fed knew that the way this program would drive economic growth was by stoking those asset prices. It was going to stoke the stock market. It was going to stoke the market for corporate debt, for leveraged loans, for corporate bonds, for commercial real estate. And Ben Bernanke and his lieutenant said, you know, if we can stoke up the stock market, that creates the so-called wealth effect, whereby Americans will start feeling like they've got money in their pocket, you know, because their 401k is looking good or they're seeing on CNBC that the stock market is up and they'll feel more free to spend. Okay, so the Fed knew it was stoking asset prices, by creating all this money in the banking system. And it it, it hoped that, that would create economic growth. But just break it down. When you look at the the actual ownership structure in America of who owns assets, the wealthiest 1% of our population owns roughly 38% of all the assets in the country. That's real estate stocks, bonds, art, cars, or not cars, but you know, real estate, corporate debt, stocks, paintings, et cetera. The top 10% of wealth earners own 65% of all the assets. Now look at the bottom half of, of the wealthiest Americans. The bottom half of the population, they own about 5 to 7% of the assets. So when you've got a program that stokes asset prices, you are necessarily dramatically increasing the wealth of the top 1%. Barely affecting the bottom half of all Americans, Mm. so that's that's the mechanical way that the Fed's been driving up income inequality. Okay, so
0: why do you think that this hasn't been challenged? Like, if it's so definitive, like if it's so like straight up, like this this is what happens because that's what it seems like to me. Like, this doesn't seem like one of those areas where you know it's like oh causation doesn't equal correlation, or you know those two metrics aren't usually tied or you know, the, there's there's like squirrely things where you can say, well, this is not definitely that. But in this case, it seems pretty, pretty like cut and dry. And it, it, is it simply because like the the asset price inflation means that the people in the position to challenge this are benefiting from it and therefore no one says anything? Is it is it really that simple? Uh,
1: that's a foundational part of it. That's exactly right, because when the Fed goes out and says, hey, we're going to do quantitative easing, the the people, the so-called elite, are fully cognizant of how crazy and radical that is. Mm -hmm. But if it's driving up the stock market, you are benefiting J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, the Carlyle Group. And I'm not trying to be conspiratorial, but you're benefiting the richest, most powerful people in the financial system. They are not going to complain. And when those people don't complain, a a project or a policy surprisingly just sails through and does A-OK. It's when you start antagonizing the very richest, most powerful institutions in the country. When you start antagonizing those people, that's when real criticism starts to come down on you. Yeah. Um, then there's another element to it. So yes, it, it it benefits the biggest of the big banks, the richest of the rich Americans. Therefore, it kind of goes through. the The second key thing is, as we've discussed, the politics of the Fed becomes so kind of arcane and obscure that most people just don't even pay attention to it. And, and then the third key element is, you know, when we see price inflation, like when the price of gasoline jumps 10% or the price of cars jumps 10%, people see it, they feel it, Mm -hmm. and it's negative. Yeah. And then they get told it's
0: the war in Ukraine when it's been happening for six
1: months. (laughs) Exactly. But when assets inflate, everybody on CNBC is like, oh my God, the stock market's up 5% (laughs) today. The housing market is booming. The housing market in the United States prices have jumped eighteen percent, double digit, crazy inflation over the last year. Not that much. Yeah, eighteen point eight percent year over year housing prices have increased in the United States. Um, not coincidentally, at a time when the Federal Reserve is directly buying roughly forty billion dollars in mortgage bonds a month. They've started to taper that down, but they were doing that for about two years while keeping interest rates pegged at zero to stoke demand. Okay. So when asset inflation happens, it's seen as this like unalloyed good thing, like, Hey, stock market's up today, but nobody's taking the step back to say, is that inflation creating an unsustainable asset bubble? That's going to eventually crash. That's, that's a problem there. So this, this, This policy has been going ahead for 10 years round after round there you go yeah
0: you can see it that's just that's just 10 major cities but i thought that gave like a good indication of where we're at there with house price growth And,
1: and and if i could make a point you know i'm sitting here reading about these metro areas like san francisco and seattle the fed is directly stoking these real estate prices. It is helping push the price up by double digits and putting houses out of the reach of more and more Americans. It's social instability, all that stuff you and I were just talking about. Um, so anyway, you know, over the last decade, these policies just it's like the, i mean i hate to use a cliche but the frog is in the water that's slowly heating up and he doesn't feel it and then it's boiling that's sort of where we are with these policies
0: yeah so so right so they started this policy in then 2010 it spread out sort of through the world as as a result and then um to fast forward then a little bit to the kind of third part of your book and the 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 situation we were in i think it was uh, september of 2019 yeah. Um, with yeah. So essentially I've heard a few people mention this to me and and sort of claim that we were on the precipice of like economic ruin in 2019. And I was like, How did I not hear about this? Like I you know, how did I not know? <laughs> um so like was that was that a reality? Like is that where we were?
1: Yes. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you read about this stuff, like I call it being fed-pilled. Like
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, in oh, September I'm gonna, I'm gonna title the episode that.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> and it's like there's this group of people who watch this stuff and you feel kind of crazy, but I mean, I walk through it in black and white like in September of 2019, before a single case of COVID was not only recorded, but I think even existed. We had a financial, we had the beginnings, we had the beginnings of a financial crisis in the United States. And 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 I'll walk through it really quickly, but a really fascinating little time period exists between about 2016, 2017, 2019, which is this period where the Federal Reserve realizes like, my gosh, we have got to stop doing this uh, we are pumping up asset prices to a dangerously high level. We might create price inflation, and the Fed was trying to pull back. It was, it was trying to reverse these these programs, but every time it did, the markets would basically short circuit and start to fall. Okay, quickly.
0: Why would that be the case? Just can you is, there, is like can you give like a, a basic explanation of that? the the
1: The basic explanation is if you spend several years. Patiently pumping up asset prices to an ultra high level. The minute you start to pull back, the markets react rationally and say, oh, well, you know, this investment we made in a 0% interest rate environment is not going to make any sense in a 2% interest environment. I am taking my money out of that crazily risky asset like you know, a fracking leveraged loan that doesn't make any sense, I'm going to, you know, if interest rates are really climbing up to 2%, I'm going to take my money out of that risky thing. And I'm going to move it into a safer thing. And part of that, again, I kind of, I walk through this, but, you know, think about the, the, the 10 year treasury bond Mm. as sort of like a savings account for wall street. It's where you can stash your money in a really safe way. If that 10-year treasury bond is paying you 4%, well, that's not a bad return. You can stash your money really safely in a 4% 10-year treasury. What the Fed's been doing for a decade is is making sure you don't have that savings account. They've been keeping those yields really low so I can barely earn anything on a 10-year treasury. So I'm going to put my cash out into these riskier instruments like all the corporate leveraged loans. But when you raise interest rates, you change that equation, those asset prices you've been patiently pumping up for 10 years are going to start to fall. And and if you've been doing it very aggressively, those prices are going to fall far and fast. And so the Fed found itself in the position of every time it tried to pull back, the markets reacted and asset prices started to fall as they naturally would because they were stoked up through, through easy money in the first place. Mm. And, and this really culminated actually in late 2018, when the market finally took seriously the fact that the Fed was gonna tighten, the, the markets went down. They didn't just go down, but they went down in this synchronized way where commodities, bonds and stocks all fell at the same time, which was kind of not supposed to happen. And, and the Fed stopped tightening. Mm. And, and, and then the crisis of September 2019 was different in that the Fed was, you know, we've talked about how they pumped all this cash into the Wall Street banking system. Mm-hmm. They were trying to take that cash back out. They, you know, they'd been doing quantitative easing and now they're trying to do something called quantitative tightening. And, and those cash levels on Wall Street began to steadily sink and then they hit this level That created a a panic Um, and the panic expressed itself in this overnight loan market that's kind of obscure called the repo loan market. Is it the
0: reverse repo market or is it the repo loan
1: market? It is the repo loan market. Okay. And this is where we start to need another hour. (laughs) <laughs> if we could please just like leave reverse repos over here for a second. Yeah.
0: Well, you're welcome. Very welcome to come back on the show and talk about it again in the future, man. I'd, I'd love to have you back.
1: That'd be great, man. And we could do a, a, an an episode on the repo market would be really interesting because the repo loan market is the lifeblood of Wall Street. That's it, it's supposed to be this very safe loan market where it's a fully collateralized loan where, a, you know, investment bank gets the cash it needs for the day yeah. by loaning really safe treasury bills. And then they reverse it back and they get the treasury bills back and give the cash back. Yes. All we need to know, all we need to know for this discussion is that in September, the uh, September, 2019, the repo market panics and freezes. The price of a repo loan, which is supposed to be an ultra safe loan, that price goes from 2% to 9% in like a day. Mm -hmm. Now, a 9% repo loan is a financial panic. And what's so interesting about this panic is I I equate it to what we see in the age of global warming with like the quote, sunny day flooding, where the sea levels rise. And like in a coastal city, the, the town is flooding when there's no rainstorm. This was like that. There there was a a seizure and a panic in the repo market, but there was no, like Lehman Brothers had not just collapsed or Russia had not just invaded Ukraine. The system was short circuiting because the Fed was trying to withdraw its stimulus. It's
0: not the correct chart.
1: Overnight reverse repo agreements Is that
0: different? Because I've been like, because the GameStop community have been following the reverse repo market incredibly closely. They even have a high scoreboard because, (laughs) like, it looks like a retro game thing. That uh, because every every like every month for the past six seven months, it went from being like the record overnight was like two hundred billion or something like that, and then they just smashed through it. And this chart, I don't even think is up to date because like the the it's it's frequently well over. well over, a, I think it's a, a trillion dollars overnight, which is obscene. Um, like well over a trillion dollars, like daily, like uh, and that's like five times as high as it used to be. And that that could be a slightly different market. Um, maybe I'm not looking at the correct thing, but um, it's it's I'd, I'd say probably a, a similar indicator that, that the banks are in need of money.
1: <laughs> y- yes, and huh, it's so crazy. The the rever- the re- okay a repo. A repo loan is where I give you treasury bills Mm -hmm. and you give me the cash equivalent and that's a repo loan. And then the next day I take back my treasury bills and pay you back the cash. Yes. That's a repo loan. A a reverse repo is the opposite. Um, I borrow treasuries from you and give you the cash. Okay. Okay and then we reverse it the next day why would that why would you need to i understand why they would need the cash
0: why would they need to buy assets and give them cat? what give the cash to the fed like what what is what is the reason for that
1: it's so this is a great question first of all if 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 the fed is offering enough money in in the rate for a reverse repo you take it because the fed is saying Hey, if you give me a bunch of cash, I'll give you this treasury bill. But the rate I'll pay you for doing this is going to be high. Like, if you've got a bunch of cash sitting in your bank account, okay. do a repo loan with me, and you'll earn uh, some some money on that cash. And I'll 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 offer you enough so that it becomes worth your while. Okay. So the, the fair what you're money. That's well what okay
0: suggesting no okay maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> here's
1: what it's here's what it's suggesting that crazy chart. Well, you should do a whole show that's just like insane Fed charts. <laughs> <laughs> we could
0: do that. We, we live... could make that the next one. We talk about the, the repo market and and the uh, insane Fed charts. I'd do that.
1: <laughs> we live in the era of insane Fed charts, where it was one way until about 10 years ago, and then the spike is super high. You just showed the level of reverse repo loans. and And what you saw was a spike in 2020, and then a spike that makes no sense like today like in in our current time
0: yeah that one like i said that one that i've shown you isn't even as high as it goes it's like even it's like twice the height of of that that the graph should be for where it's at now it's it's mind-blowing
1: and and it's a symptom of the truly mind-boggling insane level of cash that the fed is pushing into the banking system it is pushing like okay. In in 2010, when the book opens, the Fed did a, a quantitative easing worth 600 billion dollars, and it was like this controversial thing, and it was a blah blah blah. Since COVID, the Fed has been doing quantitative easing at the tune of 140 billion dollars a month. Like the permanent spigots Whoa, are open. That is a yeah. lot, man. It's it's a lot. It's hard to get across how much money the Fed is pumping in. So all this cash is flooding into the banking system. And there's so much that the banks literally have too much and they're storing some of it back at the Fed through this reverse repo. That, that's why you're seeing this crazy spike is the reverse repo is the Fed taking cash back into its house through this weird loan program. So yeah, it's, it's just a function of how much cash is out there that it just doesn't even make any sense. And it just highlights where we are right now in 2022, whereby.
0: Yeah. Where are we? Like, how, how, how screwed are we? Like, is there a chance that this doesn't like all fall apart?
1: So Jay Powell, I have not interviewed him directly about this, but one of the, you know, they bring in these private bankers to consult with the Fed and, One of these guys told me that Jay Powell said that what they're trying to do right now with, they need to raise interest rates and pull some of this cash out of Wall Street to fight price inflation. And if they don't, price inflation could continue to take, you know, embed itself and grow even further. But if they tighten too much, the markets are simply going to crash, a massive crash. And so Jay Powell has described this as trying to land a 747 on an aircraft carrier, which in my mind is just another way of saying crashing a 747. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, that doesn't sound like something (laughs) that's possible. I mean, that's just him being like, yes, well, we're trying to blow up this balloon with a spike. Um, (laughs) And so what do you think? Like, do you think it's actually possible for them to walk that line? No. Okay. No.
1: And the reason I say that is because every time they've tried to do it, the system has short circuited. Again, we were talking about that repo loan thing in in September, 2019. Uh, By the way, those repo prices, the loan market, they, they hit 10%. It was a panic and the fed had to step in and print like $400 billion. It was, I called it the $400 billion bailout. Nobody knew about. And And they had to do that to spray foam on the fire. And that's back when times were great, basically as good as the economy is going to be in a long time. Every time the Fed tries to tighten, the markets react, prices fall, volatility increases. There's no reason at all to expect it's going to be different this time. The the big question is, does the Fed basically not tighten do they not you know they've been talking all this language about raising interest rates to fight inflation but the pathway that's open to them is to simply let inflation increase and embed itself and and not create a financial market crash so you know but then it's kind of a
0: the problem is then that like as we were talking about earlier that like that inflation increases inequality and then it accelerates that situation where people have less and less if it's, if it, yeah, if it's, it's like good, like price inflation, not asset price inflation. So yeah, it's, depressing. I, yeah, it's a little depressing is. it. Um, it is, it is. Do and- you, do you think that mm-hmm. this would be like, cause normally what, what's happened in the past, whenever we've had like a big crisis of some form, whether financial or otherwise is that, you know, we have whatever happens, um, Nobody saw it coming, except always some people say it's coming and they were ignored. Uh, (laughs) Most of the time, at least anyway. And then afterwards, the kind of autopsy begins of like, oh, how could we have let this happen? And some sort of new rules and regulations will be put in place. Now, what happened after 2008? I mean, I'm not particularly convinced that that was a sufficient amount of regulation put in place um, or anything that would prevent the same things happening again basically I and and even the things that were in there in um it's not Dodd, is, is it Dodd Frank was that the it is it's Dodd Frank yeah um all the things that were put in there um most of them were then stripped back out by the by the Trump administration so like 2008 basically gave us nothing in terms of like reform in my my mind at least anyway I could be wrong there but Do you see a crash this time being followed by, you know, some learning of lessons and maybe someone um, potentially, you know, owning up to having done things that, you know, made it more possible? Like, do you think we will see a reckoning of some form?
1: (laughs) So let me answer that question. But before I do, I I think Dodd-Frank, which was the big financial reform package passed by Congress It was worse than nothing in a significant way (laughs) because with Dodd-Frank, we got the worst of both worlds. First of all, it, it, it initiated absolutely zero structural reform. It is very instructive to go back to the 1930s. Okay. We had a huge banking crisis in the United States in 1929. That's when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected shortly thereafter and the Roosevelt administration comes in, and they reform the structure of the banking system. They literally shut down the banks. They nationalize the bad banks. They break apart speculative investment banking from commercial checking account banking. Yeah. They Glass, they create Glass oh,
0: Steagall, right?
1: Glass that. Steagall. That's exactly right. And and let's just look at Glass Steagall. I describe it as like a, a biblical proclamation in the sense that it was short and sweet, but wide sweeping in its context. It was like, thou shalt not do speculative banking and commercial banking. It was simple. Dodd-Frank was the opposite. It was like, we're going to allow the too big to fail banks to remain too big to fail, but we're going to impose 2000 pages of annoying regulations upon them. So that the banks like Credit Suisse and J.P. Morgan have to hire two buildings full of lawyers and accountants to handle the regulations. So it does nothing but antagonize them and makes them hate the government while also not creating any structural reform, while also creating the illusion that we have a safe banking system, which is an illusion. (laughs) And and so that's what Dodd-Frank did. It it replaced structural reform with 2,000 pages of annoying, like, dmv style rules and regulations that have really done nothing to improve the safety of the banking system okay your question was like could we have a reckoning yeah like could, could oh. we could
0: we do so? like do do you see there being enough self-reflection if things all fall apart again or is that hopeful to your wishful thinking
1: i, I mean it, it, it it's it's what we have to hope for and push for what wor- what worries me is we have a, a pop, you know, gets back to that thing you're talking about with income inequality. People are stressed out. People have lost faith in the system because they kind of intuitively know it's not working for them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was actually just down in Orlando, Florida for the CPAC convention or the conservative political actions. This is the Donald Trump crowd. Yeah and they're focusing all of their anger on the so-called, you know, wokest leftist movement and the big tech monopolies. Mm-hmm. And then the left is focused on, on like the Koch brothers and big corporations and uh, right-wing fascists or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. What worries me is, is people read, I don't know, our media system doesn't seem built to kind of uh, 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 stoke a very healthy reckoning of like, okay, this didn't work. Mm-hmm. That didn't work. We need to reshape our political system in a way mm-hmm. that constrains the power of big banks, that puts a leash on wall street, that empowers labor unions mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the solution is, it's like, we're all kind of getting angry at these different provocative emotional things. Mm-hmm. That's what worries me is that we won't have a reckoning, but just continued anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that just lays the ground for demagogues to come in and take control. OK, so that's a bad situation. But the you know, the good situation is that we do learn lessons from what happened. Hmm. To me, one of the big lessons is pretty simple. Don't count on central banks to drive your economic growth. I mean, unfortunately, I guess now nobody needs to buy my book because like that's <laughs> the headline, like central banks can't do it. Uh, don't try to create prosperity through money printing. You've got to do the hard, yeah. hard, actual unsatisfying, investment. Yeah. actual investment and actual policy making. Like, I don't care if you're hardcore conservative or hardcore liberal, but the democratic institutions have got to lay the groundwork for prosperity. Yeah, you yeah, can't absolutely. leave it to the central banks.
0: Yeah, and I guess that yeah, that's that's just. yeah like we need to governments need to actually do things that will you know they're hard and i guess that's probably why why the republicans or the the conservatives and the democrats um with the left and the right end up in the in that situation is where it's much more profitable for a media company to tell them what they want to hear instead of challenging their beliefs a little bit even like because i have a a a very perhaps half-baked theory that most of us, like 90% of us are basically on the same side about like basically everything. Um, and uh, like aside, aside from, you know, some like very extreme fringe things or like a few issues, like most of us agree we don't want, like if you just went up and be like, look, we don't want the bankers running the country and we think they're stealing from us. I I challenge you to find someone who disagrees with that statement. <laughs> um, so I, I am maybe foolishly optimistic, but, you know, that's, that's youth for you as long as I still have it. Um, but Christopher, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to run, but I definitely would love to invite you back um, for another go. And we'll talk about insane Fed charts and the repo market. Uh, but um, before we finish, uh, do you want to like point people towards some of your work um, and and yeah, plug something on Twitter or I don't know?
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you for the great discussion. Uh, my website is christopherleonard.biz, and all my books are on there and articles. And uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciate the discussion. Thank you.
0: No problem, man. It was a it was a pleasure. Uh, great to talk to to smart people writing great books. That's uh, always a always a fun way for me to spend an evening. So awesome. thank you. Yeah. I will put links for everything in the description below. And um, yeah, until next time. Okay. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.